Thank you, Sarah. Uh, just before I get started with the message, I uh, believe I misspoke. The visitation for the Cavender uh, family is actually at Moss Funeral Home in Batavia, uh, not in Geneva. So that's Tuesday evening in, uh, in Batavia. I want to start with a story that I heard some time ago now. It's an imaginary story, uh, but it makes a point. A guy is driving to work on a busy road. Picture uh, Randall Road during rush hour. Um, he's running late, so he's in a hurry. And a lady pulls out right in front of him, uh, which irritates him, so he honks his horn a couple times, you know, to indicate that he was irritated. And she's driving slower than he wants to drive, and it frustrates him even more, so he honks again at her, trying to get her to speed up. And then when she comes to a traffic light, as it turns yellow, instead of speeding up to go through like she should, <laughs> she slows down and stops, which which really burns him up. So he honks twice more and gestures out the window like, come on, come on, drive. And just at that moment, the police lights go off in his rearview mirror. And he pulls over, which irritates him even further. The officer comes to the window, asks him for his license and his insurance and so forth, goes back to his car, then comes back a few minutes later and says, sir, I apologize, I made a mistake. It's just that I saw you honking at that lady multiple times. I saw you, bless you, I saw you gesturing out your window multiple times, uh, and then I saw the Jesus loves you bumper sticker on your car and the chrome-plated fish symbol on your bumper, and I just assumed the car was stolen. Have a nice day. <laughs> now, some of you, some of you wondering if that story was told about you, uh, but it wasn't. Uh, some of you know the background of the fish symbol, but let me give it to you in case you're unaware. The ancient Greek word for fish was ichthus, uh, which in Greek is five letters, and you see it up here. First letter is iota, which is the first letter in Jesus, which was Greek for Jesus. The second letter is um, chi, which is the first letter of Christos, Christ. The third letter is theta, the first letter of theu, or God. Uh, the fourth letter is upsilon, the first letter of huios, which means son, and then sigma, this is the first letter of soter, which means Savior. So ichthus stood for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So many early believers in Christ used the fish as a symbol of their identity as followers of Jesus. In fact, this carving was found uh, in the ruins of ancient Ephesus dating to the very first century. So what that imaginary police officer recognized is that if that driver identified with Jesus, his behavior should match that identity. And that's where we begin today. We're in a series in Colossians. As all of you know, this is, uh, we're com coming up on two months in this series called Colossians, the fullness of God. And our key verse, a verse we've been encouraging you to, to commit to memory, uh, or at least repeat it often, is found in Colossians 1, 15 to 17. We'll put that on the screen. I wonder if you'd read this out loud with me again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So far in the series, we've seen that the Apostle Paul has been teaching us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God firstborn of all creation, that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And more than that, 
if that weren't enough. Jesus is the wisdom and mystery of God made known. More than that, Jesus has canceled the debt of our sin, nailing it to the cross. And more even than that, the fullness of God dwells in Christ, and Christ now dwells in us with all of his fullness, and we are in him. Last week, Pastor Danny Strange talked about recharging our spiritual batteries. He was speaking from Colossians 3, verse 2, that says, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed, being recharged, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Now today, we're going to take the next passage on to study. And Paul presses deeper into what it means to identify with Christ. Today we're in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 to 17. I'll put it on the screen and you can follow along as I read. Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you, almost, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now there's a lot in here, as there's been in every week, uh, every passage we've looked at, but I'm going to pull out three things today. First, uh, new identity and then new clothes, and then new power. First, new identity. A few weeks ago, a month or so ago, I traveled to Germany to visit our youngest son, Kanan, who was playing uh, professional basketball over there. He's back home now. But when you travel internationally, you need to have a what? A passport. You need to have a passport, right? And my passport contains all kinds of identifiers about me. It identifies me, for example, by my photo. This is my very first passport photo, 1977. Sweet hair, huh? Okay, then advise me by my photo, by my name, by my citizenship, USA, my age, date, place of birth, August 20th, 1956, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, but according to Paul, my passport, with, even with all the information, contains nothing about who I am. Tells you nothing about who I am. Am. Paul reminds the Colossian believers who they are in Christ. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The NIV translation reads this way, therefore, therefore, because you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, because you have been qualified, forgiven, redeemed, reconciled, made alive, all those he's already covered, and because the fullness of Christ now dwells in you, therefore, because of all of that, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. 
So we're going to, I'm going to come back to the phrases put on or clothe yourselves in just a minute. I want to first look at three words Paul uses to describe who we are in Christ. That is, if you're a believer, who you are. Chosen, holy, beloved. First, chosen. The word here in Greek is eklektoi. It means to select or to elect. Now, what does it mean that we are chosen? Uh, you remember the playground ritual of choosing up sides for teams? There's a Norman Rockwell picture of little boys choosing up sides for baseball. Maybe you're playing kickball or wiffle ball or something, but usually the two biggest kids or the best kickball player or the best baseball players are the captains. Right? And you kind of, after a while, you kind of know who the captains always are. And then they take churn, turns choosing who they want for their team. You know, and they'll pick the tallest or the strongest or the fastest, the most athletic, most popular. And those kids are all chosen first. And then the less athletic, less popular kids are chosen last. And the choosing process was based purely on ability or popularity. It was a meritocracy, and it was brutal on the last kids chosen. Right? Okay. I guess I got Billy, right? Brutal. But Jesus doesn't choose that way. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us, the same word, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So if you're a believer today, you did not choose Christ. He chose you. you. You did not know him. He knew you before you knew him. He loved you before you loved him. He forgave you before you even knew you needed to be forgiven. He saved you before you needed, knew you needed saving. And if you do not follow him today. If you're not a believer, if you aren't quite sure about your faith, it's all still true of you. He chose you. He loved you. He's called you. All that's remaining is your response of faith to his invitation. Now, listen again. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, not many of you were good at kickball. Not many of you were popular kids. But God chose, same word, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So his criteria for choosing was not based on our abilities, your abilities, our intelligence, our attractiveness. His only criteria was his own grace and goodness. You are chosen, Paul says. Secondly, you are holy. Holy. The word holy means to be set apart by God and for God's purpose, to be different. God is holy because he is different, absolutely unique. Separate from all other creation. God is, uh, the Bible is holy because, and we call it the Holy Bible because it's set aside for God's purpose. It's unique. It's different from any other book. Marriage is holy. We call it holy matrimony because marriage is a unique relationship designed to be separate from all other relationships and to point us 
to God's own covenant love. Now, there are two sides to holiness, so to speak. On the one hand, we are made holy by Christ. In Hebrews 10 we read, And by that will, God's will, we have been made holy. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Paul has already said in Colossians, Jesus has canceled the written debt of our sin, nailed it to the cross. But on the other hand, we also pursue holiness through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This process is called sanctification. That's a very churchy-sounding word. It just means being made holy. Again, Hebrews chapter 10. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We are both made holy and we are being made holy. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you are chosen and you are holy, Paul says. Thirdly, you are beloved. Beloved. The NIV reads, dearly loved. The word Paul uses here is agapeo, which is a form of agape, the great word that means love in the ancient Greek. An unconditional love. This is the love of God. This is to treasure another regardless of their state or their behavior. Agape. You are loved. In 1 John we read, See what great love, agape, the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Notice the statement of identity there. That is what we are. John writes in 1 John 4, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. The late Timothy Keller, uh, pastor and theologian who passed away just a couple of weeks ago, uh, perhaps one of his most famous quotes is when he wrote, The gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. Now, if you've heard me preach over the last few years, uh, you know I often I like to say that the gospel promises us four news, N-E-W-S, news. New heart, new identity, new purpose, and new destiny. And I like to say it that way because I think over the years uh, that we in the church have a tendency to kind of truncate or shrink the gospel just to new heart, new destiny. You know, believe in Jesus, get your sins forgiven, go to heaven when you die, which is true. But we must not miss new identity, we have to get the identity part of the gospel right because we, we have to see the role that identity transformation plays in the promise of the gospel. And I believe and if we pay attention at all to culture, we can see that our culture today has captured the whole discussion of identity. And we as believers have to take that discussion back a bit. Our culture today says and shouts, shouts at us in a thousand different ways that identity is shaped by external markers. That identity is shaped by our behavior, that it's shaped by our gender, it's shaped by ethnicity, it's shaped by political views, it's shaped by education, by our occupation, or it's shaped by our subjective feelings about ourselves. 
Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the way to think about identity at all. Our identity is not shaped by any of those external markers or by the subjective feelings we have about ourselves. Our identity is shaped by Christ. He says back in verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. All those were identity markers in the ancient world. You were this or you were that. That's how you identified yourself. Paul says they're all irrelevant now, completely irrelevant, because Jesus tells us who we are, that we are chosen, we are holy, and we are beloved. We have a new identity. Secondly, we see in this passage new clothes. New clothes. When I was a junior in high school, um, my mom took me to get some new dress clothes. It was growing, and I kind of outgrew what I had, so I had to get some new dress clothes. Now, this was 1973, and so the styles for young people then were, you know, groovy. (laughs) Some of you remember, I'm just thankful there were no digital cameras back then to take these pictures. Um, So I picked out some new clothes, and here's what I picked out. Now, try to imagine in your mind this look. And I, I have no pictures of this, so you have to imagine. Just don't try too hard. But I picked out some brown and white vertical striped bell-bottom pants. Okay, got that? Uh, a brown shirt with huge flying collar, white tie, white belt. Uh, and then to top it all off, a tan triple double-breasted jacket with wide lapels. I told you it was groovy. And so the first time I wore uh, this outfit was to an end-of-the-year sports banquet at my high school. Uh, I walked into the school cafeteria where the banquet was held, and it was filled with all my teammates from the basketball team. And I realized as I walked in, everybody else there was just wearing sweaters and jeans. And I came walking in, and one of the guys off my team, who was a year older than me, kind of one of the cool kids on the team, he looked at me and went, man, coffee, you look like one of the Beatles. And he did not mean it as a compliment. Uh, Mark Twain once said that clothes make the man. Well, I discovered that some clothes make the man look silly. Uh, I don't remember ever wearing that outfit again, actually. At least not to school. Think of it this way. Every single morning, this morning, uh, we all decide what clothes to put on. Today, a lot of you decided to wear red, white, and blue, or some version of that, because of Memorial Day. We decide what to put on. Here's where Paul tells us what we are to put on. Verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. In other words, because you are already in Christ, put on, clothe yourselves with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on, he says. Now, this is a verb. It means to clothe yourselves, to sink into a garment. And it reads like a command. Now, what we should notice here is that our identity in Christ is a gift. We do nothing whatsoever to earn or deserve that gift. It's a gift from him to us. He chose you, Paul says. He made you holy. He loved you first. Therefore, put on new clothes. I recently have a husband, um, a wife whose husband was somewhat challenged in his uh, choices in clothing and making things match. 
So she created a, a kind of a chart for him. So that and on the chart had all his clothes on a big chart, like a matrix. And it, like if you wore this shirt, these pants, these socks, right? Now some of you wives are thinking, hmm, <laughs> could be an idea there. Paul says, we are to put on that which matches what we already have in our identity in Christ. Paul's saying that while our identity is a gift, our behavior is a choice. Something we put on, something that we do. Now notice, and this is really significant, our behavior does not determine our identity. That's what our culture teaches. What Paul teaches, what our faith teaches us, is that our identity determines our behavior. See the difference? Okay, so what new clothes, what new behaviors and attitudes are we to put on? Paul lists eight characteristics here, or qualities. I'm going to go through them just briefly. First, he says, put on compassionate hearts. That means to care deeply for others. It's sort of the opposite of apathy and indifference. And we've seen this over the past week, how so many from our church family have come around those who are grieving. He says, put on kindness. This is a beautiful word, Christotes in Greek. It means more than just niceness, it's where goodness and excellence meet real needs. It's where goodness and excellence meet real needs. Think, for example, of our Shepherd's Heart ministry, meeting needs of up to 1,000 people a month, right now, right in the lower level of this building. He says, put on humility. This is literally lowliness in mind. It's the opposite of pride. Did you know that in the ancient world, and uh, John Dixon writes about this in a book he wrote years ago called Humilitas, uh, in the ancient world, in the entire ancient world, <coughs> before Jesus, to call someone humble was an insult. It was not as a desirable trait to have. It all changed with Jesus and his followers. Humility became a virtue. Meekness, often translated as gentleness, it means power in reserve. Picture an NFL football player or a bodybuilder picking up a baby and holding the baby gently. Patience and bearing with kind of go together. The word for patience means literally long-suffering, and bearing with means to endure with or suffer with another, like getting stuck behind a really slow driver on Randall Road. Long-suffering, patience. Forgiving, the word forgive is literally to give grace. Why? Because Jesus has already given you grace that you did not deserve. And then finally love, this great word agape, which allows all these qualities to work together and which God has poured out on us through his goodness. Now notice a couple things here. First, I think often we think of these um, as sort of personality traits. As in, well, you know, she's just naturally such a kind person. And we say that, what we're really doing is giving ourselves a pass. Like, you know, I'm just not patient by nature. These aren't personality traits. These are choices. These are marks of the character of Jesus himself that he has already shown to us and that we are therefore to put on, which means we are able to put them on if we choose to obey. And notice also what Paul does not say here. He doesn't say we are to wake up every day and put on, for example, cynicism. 
I'll put on my cynic jacket. I'll put on my impatience shirt. I'll put on my critical or judgmental attitude hat. No. He also does not say put on your political affiliation, put on your job title at work, put on your productivity or your thriftiness. It talks about putting on the character of Christ himself. That's a high calling indeed. So how do we do that? How do we every day get up and put on our new clothes? How do we do that? That leads us to the third point I see here, and that is the new power. New power. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The first thing I noticed here when I began to study this passage was Paul's shift here from put on, which sounds like a a command, to let, which has a different feel to it. To put on is something we do. It's obedience. It takes effort. It's committing our behavior and conforming our behavior to the identity of Christ that he's given to us. But to let, (coughs) excuse me, to let is more like allowing. Like allowing God through the power and work of his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to do in us what he already wants to do. Let. He says, let the peace of Christ rule. Now, what does he mean by peace of Christ? Uh, This is not uh, the peace you might feel or I might feel when everything is good in in my world, where everything is good in your world, where the kids are healthy and your bank account is full. He's not talking about that kind of peace. He's talking about the peace that only Christ can give, the peace of being loved by God, the peace of being forgiven The peace of knowing you are never alone. The peace of knowing your eternal destiny is secure. He says, let this peace, the peace that only the one who is all and in all can give you, let this peace rule. Now that word rule is interesting. It means to like an umpire or an arbiter. It says, so let the peace of Christ determine what you allow to rule in your heart. So the question is, what do you allow to rule in your heart. We can allow lots of things to rule, to determine our direction, our behavior. Anger, anxiety, bitterness, fear. Paul says, no, none of those things can rule or should rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Secondly, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, what's the word of Christ? Now, the easy answer is, well, it's the word of God. Well, Paul here is, he doesn't even have the New Testament to go on yet. He's writing it as, as we're reading, right? So Paul's pointing both to the teachings of Jesus, what Jesus actually said, think Sermon on the Mount and some of his parables, and he's pointing to the teachings of the apostles about Jesus. So in short, yes, the word of God. Let his word dwell in you richly. The word dwell means to make one's home, to take up personal residence. 
And the word richly means, and I found this interesting, means in abundance or in great quantity. So let the word of Christ make its home in your heart in great quantities. So the question is, what do we allow to take up residence, to dwell in our hearts? Paul's saying we are to let, to allow, to invite the truth of Christ, what he's already done and what he wants to do, dwell in us. We can let lots of things dwell. We can actually invite lots of things to dwell in our hearts. The chaotic and confusing voices of our culture, you know, politics, social media, YouTube videos, all kinds of things can dwell there. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you Richly, abundantly, in great quantities. And then the last thing he points us to is a posture of gratitude. A posture of gratitude. Three times in three verses, Paul talks about gratitude. He says, be thankful. That comes from the Greek word eucharistoi, which, from which we get our word eucharist, which a lot of church traditions use to uh, name the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, which will Remember, next week after our service. That's the word he uses for give thanks. Uh, then in the middle reference, he says, with thankfulness in your hearts. <clears throat> when I looked this up, I found something interesting. In that phrase, he does not use the same word for thankfulness. It's a whole phrase he uses that is translated different ways in different New Testaments. But it literally means, with grace singing in your hearts to God. With grace singing in your hearts to God. And then the third reference is back to Eucharisteo, giving thanks to the Father for what he has done. So why would Paul point to thankfulness or gratitude three times in three verses? I think he's saying to us that gratitude, being thankful to God, is both our response to the grace of Christ and is the grace that allows us to choose, put on, and wear our new clothes well. You think about it. If you go back to all those eight characteristics, they're all relational characteristics. But if you begin with thankfulness in your hearts, with grace singing in your hearts to God, it's much easier to put on all of those new clothes. He says, be thankful. I want to close with a story that... Um, my dad told me a number of times uh, from his teen years, and I, I loved this little story. When he was about 15 years old, <clears throat> he had grown quite interested in girls. Uh, he had not grown up in a Christian family, and by that time in his life, I'm not sure he'd ever even once been to church. Uh, he had his eye on a certain girl at his high school who was one of the prettiest um, and most popular girls in school who also had a bit of a reputation. So he asked her out for a date. Uh, he said that, as, that he had to borrow a car from a buddy or somebody and went to pick her up. And as she got into the car, she turned to him and said something like, uh, I think you ought to know something. Last Friday night, I went to a, uh, a church meeting and I gave my life to Jesus. And there are some things that I don't do anymore. She had experienced a transformation of her identity which produced a change in her behavior. She was wearing new clothes. My dad said he was surprised, maybe a little disappointed, but impressed. And it was just a few weeks later that my dad was invited by a couple of his football buddies to attend a Methodist revival meeting 
And there he met Jesus. And the same thing happened to him. The trajectory of his life completely changed, and it's a long story. Eventually, a whole family tree changed. And I like to imagine that someday in heaven, I might meet that young lady. I have no idea what happened in the rest of her life. And I'll want to thank her in whatever way that could happen for the influence she had on my dad as a young man. And through him, my life. But I also imagine that if I were able to do that, she would probably say, now you know, of course, that that wasn't me. That was Jesus in me. And that's true. This ancient letter to Colossians, Paul is saying three things. Jesus is everything. Jesus is in you. And he changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much again for your word, for this ancient letter written to teach and encourage men and women who lived so long ago in a different time and place, but who were also struggling to understand and hold on to faith. So I thank you for the great gift of a new identity, to know that we are chosen and holy and beloved. And help us by your spirit and by your word to put on and wear our new clothes well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before the benediction, let me invite you again. You're welcome to join us for our potluck brunch down in the Student Center immediately following uh, the benediction. On your way there, if you haven't yet picked up your name tag, pick one up right in the lobby. Write your name and your favorite fruit. That'll be your ticket to get into the brunch. And I'm going to say a prayer now to bless the food so you can get started right away. Go through the line, find a table, and we'll share some time of fellowship together. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for being present with us today in this gathering of worship. We thank you for our church family uh, here at this campus and our other campuses. We thank you for the time we have coming up where we can just share a meal together. Thank you for the food and those who have provided it and prepared it. You give us a great time of fellowship around those tables. And now receive the benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.